Part 4. What are we doing? Chapter 10. Deep in every human heart is a yearning for the paradise we have lost. If only we could get back to the garden, to the place where no one is ill and no one ever dies. How wonderful it would be to live where everyone is kind and helpful, and where no thought is ever given to cruelty or estrangement or conflict of any kind. And Jesus felt exactly as we do. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, he wept at the grave of Lazarus. His teaching was always tinged with tension, his prayers to his father wistful and vulnerable. We read that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. His thoughts are drawn to the needs of others, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Because of your hardness of heart, he told them, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. The beginning was quite different. It was a wonderful time, and there is a hankering in every human heart to recover what we once had. Jesus himself was never at ease in this fallen world. He was not of this world. He was sent here not to enjoy the world, nor to condemn the world, but so the world through him might be saved. His servants have the same vulnerable wistfulness, the same sense of being not quite at home, and the same compassionate calling towards others in great need. In our own way, we continue a work that he began. Like him, we are picking up the pieces. In a fragile environment, accidents will happen. To most of us, they may seem quite random and unpredictable, although a trained eye might foresee some dangers. If a builder had inspected the Tower of Siloam and repaired it, the tower might not have fallen on the 18 people who were passing at the time. But a structure which becomes unstable is bound to fall, and those in it and around it are likely to be hurt. This is the nature of planet Earth. In a fractured and disturbed creation, the remarkable thing is not that we suffer disease and accident and injury, but that these things happen so rarely and that we so often recover. When touched by infirmity, we should not take it personally. Jesus tells us that those on whom the tower fell were not more guilty in God's eyes than others who lived nearby. In a cracked and crumbling world, these things are inevitable. From time to time, nature takes a tumble and some of us are bruised. As one of Job's friends observed, man is born to trouble as surely as the sparks fly upward. An explosion from a gas pipe, 
a drunken driver on a spree, a falling rock on a mountain road, a class of children abducted from a school, an innocent bystander shot. These are unpredictable events that come to us as human beings, to believers and unbelievers alike. The only difference between us lies in our response. For an atheist or agnostic, the accident is entirely tragic. But a believer knows that something good will come of it. It's not happened unless the eternal God allowed it. And we wait expectantly for the sequel to unfold. We have seen that in this fallen world, all living things wear out, decline in strength, lose vital functions and eventually die. We are all slowly ageing. The body clock is ticking and time is running out. If we are wise, we'll not waste a moment of what remains. It is written, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Some families seem to live to a greater age than others, just as some are unusually tall or musical or athletic. It's a genetic inheritance. And if a child suffers leukemia, or a young mother gets cancer, or a husband dies of diabetes, or a parent has early dementia, the underlying cause will often be genetic too, passed down from earlier generations. With problems written into our DNA, we're not recent casualties in the struggle between good and evil but scarred by an event that took place long ago. The quake is past, but the aftershocks can still be felt. And our Heavenly Father is even now repairing the damage, healing the wounds, strengthening what remains, enabling us to make the very best of what we have. And we can be sure He loves us and values us exactly as we are. Many a parent has lavished special care on a child with special needs, and that child has become the best loved of them all. Our Father, who knows how to work it all for good, will make our losses and infirmities a blessing in some surprising way. Those with special needs will receive his special care. And whatever our handicaps may be, there are others, far worse off, who need our help. We have this assurance. God is able to give you all you need, so that you always have plenty for yourselves, and more than enough to help others in every way too. It is here and now, dear friend, that we have work to do. In these days we are picking up the pieces. When Jesus comes, he will put them back together. In this age of global pandemics and criminal abuse, kidnappings, murders and civil war, we may think there is more wickedness now than in our childhood, 
and far more than a hundred or a thousand years ago. In reality, there is probably no more evil than in past times, but certainly far more knowledge of evil. This is what really troubles us. The knowledge of evil has become a heavier burden than ever before in the course of human history. Our great-grandparents knew only what was happening in their own village or town or nation, along with the little foreign news approved by censors and editors. Many grim facts of science and medicine were still hidden from public view. Now we have continuous news bulletins depicting terror and disaster from around the globe without discretion or constraint. And every day our television documentaries unveil fresh horrors of disease and violence in the natural world. Some people find this massive publicity for evil quite stimulating and exciting. Unstable individuals and societies are apt to glory in conflict and cruelty, to accept it as normal and even necessary for the survival of the fittest. But as the knowledge of evil escalates, the world may be about to change its perception and response. As the world news becomes increasingly disturbing and oppressive, we could easily be on the threshold of a global revulsion against everything shocking and cruel. A longing for peace, for safety, for kindness, friendship and goodwill may become almost universal, with a great hunger for all that is uplifting and encouraging. And along with this, an admiration for those whose lives are devoted to helping others, rather than pleasing and promoting themselves. Even now, wherever there is an earthquake or a famine, many ordinary people are moved to send contributions, and some will volunteer to go and help. Such tragedies bring not just sadness and loss, but also much kindness and goodwill, with compassionate programmes to benefit the survivors. We read that, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And it may be those very tribulations that lead anxious multitudes to seek it. As planet Earth enters its final agonies, many may be profoundly moved by the love of the Lord's people for those in need. And perhaps with their last breath, turn to him. It's not yet too late for a dying thief to put his trust in Christ and find himself in paradise. We might wish that the dying thief had never taken to thieving, and indeed had never died. Having studied the long history of conflict between good and evil, we may wonder if it was all inevitable or if it might have been prevented in some way. Why was the agonising struggle between right and wrong not stopped before it could get started? Why was the tempter not restrained 
before our earliest ancestors could be tempted? Why was the Saviour not sent quickly to the garden to atone for the offence committed there? Why was Satan not immediately banished or destroyed? Why was the new earth not formed as soon as the old became corrupt? In a word, why did the eternal God allow this appalling conflict between good and evil to trouble the entire history of humankind? There is one reason, perhaps, that transcends all others. We have learned from this bitter experience what could be learned in no other way. A limited knowledge of evil has brought us a great understanding of good. The human race now has long experience of many ways that goodness can prevail against wickedness and overcome. Only in a broken world, surrounded by needy and unhappy people, can we observe great kindness and compassion. Only when oppressed by falsehood do we really know the value of truth. Only when surrounded by filth do we appreciate what is pure and clean. Only when stifled by corruption do we rightly esteem honesty. Only when hindered and frustrated can we learn to be faithful and steadfast. Only when persecuted can we bless those who despise us. Only when wronged and mistreated do we have opportunity to forgive. Only when weak and helpless do we really feel a need to trust and pray. We are what we are because of the world we live in. The followers of Jesus can be the salt of the earth and the light of the world only because we live in a world that is dark and unsavoury. We have an awareness of good that could be obtained in no other way. It is illness that teaches us to value health. It is war that makes us appreciate peace. It is death that shows us the wonder of life. It is facing destruction that we learn what it means to be saved. We have a rich spiritual heritage that will inspire thankfulness and delight for all eternity. For as it is written, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The purpose of the Lord God with evil is not to eliminate it, but to use it, until the day dawns when it has served its purpose and is no more use. And paradise, when it comes, will be far more wonderful for those who have suffered and endured great hardship than for those who have always possessed health and wealth. When the world and worldly people treat us badly, we learn to see the world for what it is. We face difficulties because many around us are lazy, selfish or corrupt. 
They have no reason to be honest or generous or hard-working if they can get away with less. Awkward and unhelpful people remind us of the difference between those who know Christ and those who do not. We read, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people prefer the darkness to the light because their deeds are evil. In paradise, it would be relatively easy to live a perfect life, although our first parents failed in this. But to live a perfect life in a corrupt world among evil-minded people with a malicious adversary would be a far greater achievement. This is set before us as a possibility, although only one human being has ever yet achieved it. As it is written, one who in every way was tempted as we are, and yet did nothing wrong. Jesus was never guilty of the failings we see in others and in ourselves. Amidst the jealousies, deceptions and temptations of the world, he was always honest, kind and pure. He suffered as we all do and persevered. He died as we all do and rose from death. For as we read, it was fitting that in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, God, who owns and sustains all things, should through suffering perfect the one who leads them to salvation. In a world that tests us as it tested him, none of us are yet perfect or complete as he was. Yet we are encouraged to aim that high. We are told, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. It can only be done as the character of Christ is formed in us, and yet it can be done. The Apostle expects it in new believers as he prays for them. My little children, for whom I again suffer the pains of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. We can only become like Christ through facing danger and difficulty as he did, and overcoming evil as he did with good. It's through steadfastness in affliction that the character of Christ is formed in us. Every problem or sorrow we face is an opportunity to become more like him. And how much better to be like him than like Adam or Eve, even at their best in their unfallen state. Many setbacks that appear disastrous can become heroic. Many losses that seem tragic may become triumphant. We read that we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Without the suffering, we would not be qualified to share the glory. Just as Jesus bore the nail prints in his hand, the Apostle Paul carried the scars of many beatings and imprisonments. From now on, he said, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. 
Many among us carry scars, honourably wounded in the battle. In eternity, we'll be surrounded by friends who have survived tragedies, overcome crippling handicaps, remained faithful through many difficulties, and we will love them all the more for that. And so will he. Some of us might still wish for an easier path to glory, and one question may yet remain to trouble us. If God is perfect in love and power, could he not miraculously keep us from all harm? Let us pursue the idea of a fallen creation where everyone else suffers disease, damage, decay and death, while the children of God remain miraculously unharmed. To secure such immunity, we must be detached from the collectivities we belong to, with the judgments that affect them. We would no longer figure in nation, family, or indeed in common humanity, who must now suffer without us. And if believers are secured against all misfortune, the accusation of Satan concerning Job would stand, that God buys for himself worshippers by giving them an easy life. Then in a world where some have the benefit of miracles and others do not, planning of any kind becomes impossible, because the need for a miracle cannot be accurately predicted, and a miracle for one may unexpectedly change the circumstances for many others. And soon, of course, we would be tempted, as Jesus was, to jump off buildings, to rely on miraculous loaves of bread, or even to seize kingdoms from enemies who could never hurt us. So what kind of people would we be? If illness and death could not touch us, we would live forever amidst temptation and corruption, and would probably have no wish for a new heaven and earth at all. To isolate us from all trouble in a fallen world is not the best solution to our problem. It would be like keeping a banana fresh in a compost heap, or a bean unscathed in a coffee grinder. To be truly safe, we need not miraculous protection, but changed conditions. And that is exactly what we are promised. In time of need, we may certainly pray for something special to happen. And sometimes our Heavenly Father does intervene miraculously. But our normal course is to bear our share of adversity, to experience our measure of fallenness, to weep with those who weep, before finally and thankfully entering the unfallen realm which will be our eternal home. But are we yet ready for that wonderful transformation. Like any good parent, our Heavenly Father makes sure his children grow up well. 
He's more concerned with our character than our comfort or success. The Apostle Paul confessed, To keep me from becoming puffed up with pride because of the many wonderful things I saw, I was given a thorn in the flesh to keep me from becoming conceited. Our Father loves us too much to let us go far on a road that would lead to sorrow and regret, and so he stops us in our tracks. For the moment, we read, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a peaceful harvest of goodness to those who have been trained by it. Hardships and hindrances may often serve to redirect an erring prophet or bring the prodigal home. Someone who has not known failure and never felt the need for sympathy or kindness is rarely a pleasant person. And in reality, we learn far more from our defeats than from our victories. If our hopes and plans are frustrated, the reason may be that we still have much to learn. We need more information, perhaps, or deeper understanding, or better social skills, or more perseverance and prayerful dependence on guidance and provision from above. In fact, every setback we face can add a facet to our character and hasten our spiritual growth. There is joy, even in sorrow, when God's love is poured into our hearts, refining our personality and inspiring us with hope. So the Apostle says, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's through dependence that I learn to be thankful, through being forgiven that I learn to forgive, through receiving comfort that I learn how to comfort others. It's through failure that I learn to put my trust in my Heavenly Father rather than myself. It's through many tribulations that we enter the kingdom of God, because many tribulations will make us better suited for it when it comes. The troubles we face will keep our feet on the ground, but our old enemy would like to keep us rooted to the spot. <laughs>